Has the world fallen out of love with democracy? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, September 12th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, journalist Dmitry Maritov was honored with the Nobel Peace Prize, but his reporting on the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put his life and others at grave risk. Frontlines, Putin and the press explores the consequences of reporting in Russia. We'll talk about the symptoms and diagnosis of ALS for this week's On Call segment. Plus, from gold stars to pizza parties, rewarding students is part of many a classroom culture. But what are we really rewarding? This week's Teacher Talk segment urges you to rethink the reward in school and in the workplace. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Are you ready to fall into a new season? That is flu season. That's right, flu season's just around the corner, and vaccines that protect against influenza have shipped to drugstores and doctor's offices across the state. And fall COVID-19 booster shots might also be available soon. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But Dr. Jeremy Cowles is chief physician at Sanford Health, and he has stopped by SDPB's Kirby Family Studio for an update. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Influenza season. Is it too soon to get a shot? Tell us a little bit about what's available for flu shots and what timing you should be thinking about before you get yours. Sure. So I look at it as whenever you get the opportunity to get a flu shot at this point in the year, it's probably okay. Uh, We tend to push really hard during the month of October. Um, What we do know is that the data coming out of South America is that the flu shot this year should be quite good. Um, preventing more than 50% of the cases of influenza B and probably another 45% of the cases of influenza, I'm sorry, I said that backwards, influenza A more than 50% and about 45% of influenza B. So it will be effective as flu shots go. So I I always just go get it as soon as because I remember I used to always try to kind of game the timing. I was like, oh, I don't want to get too early because then, and then I got the flu and I was like, "Mm, no, that's not worth it. (laughs) So I just get my shot as as soon as I can. Um, Flu shots, RSV vaccinations, COVID-19 vaccinations. you got a lot to think about when you move into this season. Help me understand how to pace all of that together and make a plan for it. Because I can't get them all at once. I will just not handle that well. No, I completely Emotionally. (laughs) Emotionally and otherwise. (laughs) So what kind of timing do you suggest for that? I suggest um, for people that don't have a history of reactions, uh, the flu shot and the uh, COVID vaccine can be administered at the same time. It's safe to do so. If you have somebody who has a history of reacting badly to one or other of the vaccines, it's probably better to space them out over a couple of weeks just to allow your body a little time to recover. There is no medical reason why you would need to. But for many people, it's just the physical recovery out of it all. Yeah, I think it's just in my head. But we'll just go. We'll just work with the head that I have and uh, space it out two weeks. Sure. Um, n- new infants. And how, how, how little is too little? When do you start talking about uh, with your pediatrician about flu shots, RSV shots, and COVID boosters? So and not boosters for little kids if they never had one. I was going to say, yeah. it would be their first shot. And yeah. so six months is generally the time that we start talking about flu and COVID. Now... The big development in medicine right now is the new RSV shot. Um, And that shot is an antibody that's been developed so it looks as much like your own human antibodies as it can Mm -hmm. and can actually be given to 
mothers or babies, depending on the conditions, um, and will help protect the baby in either case. So one of those things we always worry about is those youngest of infants in those, you know, four, four months to their first year, year and a half is when RSV can really attack their airways. And so this gives us the opportunity to have a durable response throughout the um, RSV season. Um, in the past, we've used a drug that only lasts for about a month. And so for those kiddos who desperately needed the protection, they would be redosed multiple times during the RSV season. So this should be a welcome change for those folks. Okay, so the RSV vaccinations are available now, or are they coming? Uh, the RSV vaccinations, uh, one of them, the older one, is available now. Uh, the new one is coming, and we are seeing small amounts of stock currently, and we will be ready as RSV season continues to roll forward. So I would expect by October it shouldn't be any difficulty having a conversation with your family doctor, your pediatrician, and making sure um, you or your child um, are appropriately protected. All right, so RSV for six months and, yes. and, and older, when is the first COVID shot for an infant? Uh, the COVID shots for an infant, as I recollect, they went down to as low as six months. Um, and what we tell folks is it really depends on what your personal choices are as far as the vaccines, um, but they are available. The new vaccine, I haven't seen it, what it's all been approved for, if they approved mm -hmm. it carte blanche for all our age groups or if they're just going with older ones. So forgive me, I don't have that detail in front of me right yeah, now. Yeah, let's talk about the new COVID booster, though, because if you go to get a shot today, you might be told, wait two weeks, there was something coming down the pipeline. What do we know so far about a, a COVID booster for the fall? So what we know is that there are three different governing bodies that help us choose what vaccinations we have. Yesterday, uh, governing body number one said okay. Today and tomorrow, we expect governing body number two and three to say, okay, number three is the CDC. And once they get through those three, then they will officially say, out with the old, the old bivalent booster, and in with this new one, um, which is uh, dubbed uh, variant 1.5. We are currently on variant XBB 1.5 something mm -hmm. in the world. And so this is the vaccine that's supposed to protect us against what's now circulating out there. All right. So we saw some increase in, in COVID cases, but we didn't see an increase in hospitalization or any kind of crisis like we all recall living through. Tell us a little bit about what the infection rates are and how we're seeing people handle COVID now. So what we've seen is an increase in the percent of positive tests. So out of 100 tests, we used to see 6 or 7% positive. We went up to as high as maybe 15 or 17%. That being said, what we aren't seeing is people in the intensive care unit, which is what we're really trying to prevent. We see a few people in the hospital, but to compare it to several years ago, um, those days were hundreds of people in the hospital with COVID and literally overflowing intensive care units with people that needed ventilators or needed help with their breathing. What we don't have right now is really any patients in the ICU because of COVID. And so we feel much better about the fact that between the way this virus has mutated and the way people have gotten protected from the virus with vaccines, that this round of COVID should be considerably less concerning from an overall population standpoint than it has been in the past. For people going into the fall, they're talking to their doctors or their pharmacists about vaccinations, but they're also thinking about regular prevention things. Um, 
when would you wear a mask? When would you avoid going to a, you know, a social gathering? What are the sort of circumstances that you want to remind people about just good, healthy prevention of respiratory illness transfer that we all need a reminder of? I think first and foremost, nobody's ever been faulted with washing their hands too many times. Um, I think the other part is you have to understand what your own personal risk is. If you're one of those folks that's going through cancer treatment or have some reason that you don't have a normal immune system, if you're one of those folks that has bad lung disease and you know even the slightest cold could tip you over into something you don't want to be in, those are the people that I recommend, A, make sure you're vaccinated, B, um, consider wearing a mask in those situations where you're going to see lots of faces and lots of people, um, and C, um, also take into consideration that if you do feel even mildly ill, it's a great time to call your doctor because we now have an appropriate medication that could really turn the tide on influenza or COVID and make it so that you don't have to go through such a severe illness. Yeah. I hope we've all remembered that when you start feeling ill, to pay attention to it instead of just powering through. You might still go to work and you might, <laughs> you might keep, keep going, but at least you're paying more attention to it, hopefully than we were back in the days when we just toughed it out. I was going to say, I grew up here in the Midwest. I understand the stalwart you know, t tactic of yeah. I can just power through it. Yeah. But this is one of those times, especially if you carry other medical illnesses with you, that the right thing to do is to say, you know what? If I call my doctor, I don't have to be miserable for as long. Dr. Jeremy Cowles, Chief Physician at Sanford Health. Thanks for stopping by. We appreciate it, as always. Thanks for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, it's a disease that's known by two names. You might recognize it as ALS or as Lou Gehrig's disease. The condition takes the latter name from one of the first high-profile people who spoke out about it. Lou Gehrig was a Major League Baseball player for the New York Yankees. He was diagnosed with ALS in 1939, and he died from the disease just two years later. Dr. Jill Cruz is a family medicine practitioner with Brookings Health System. She is our On Call with the Prairie Doc team member today, and she wrote a moving blog post for On Call about Lou Gehrig's legacy and how much we still don't know about this condition since his diagnosis. And Dr. Cruz joins me now on the phone. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Nice to, nice to hear your voice again, Jill. Yes, it's been uh, a long break for summer, but Prairie Doc is back uh, with new episodes. We're excited for this new uh, season. Prairie Doc is back with new episodes and talking about ALS. You're going to have to give us the, the full name of what that acronym stands for. Yes, so ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So that's kind of a mouthful and why a lot of people uh, do abbreviate it to ALS. Tell us a little bit about what's happening when you get an ALS diagnosis. How does it usually show up in people? So usually ALS will show up with um, some of muscle stiffness, muscle twitching, uh, a gradual increasing weakness. And then as it progresses, it can cause difficulties with speaking, difficulties with swallowing, difficulties with breathing, and ultimately um, respiratory failure where someone would be dependent on a ventilator to breathe for them. So one of the reasons that Lou Gehrig's um, speech on, in Yankee Stadium was so powerful was because of how he kind of handled this disease. And we knew if you were alive at that time, people knew 
that um, the future was not bright for him, that he had gotten, as he said, a really bad break, but he considered himself a lucky man. Have we gotten better at treating ALS? Is it largely the same? What have we learned since then? There are some treatments for it, but unfortunately, life expectancy really hasn't increased that much from when Lou Gehrig was diagnosed. He lived less than two years with the disease after his diagnosis, but typically life expectancy is anywhere from two to four years after diagnosis. Although there are exceptions where Stephen Hawking had the same disease and he lived over 50 years with it. So it's quite variable, but still the prognosis is pretty limited and short after someone's diagnosed today for most people. So tell me a little bit about research and what do we need to know? What is the ongoing research pointing toward? I think right now what we need to do is find the cause for it. Still, about 85% of cases have an unknown cause or diagnosis, and only about 15% are seem to have like a genetic or hereditary factor to this. So until we can find basically what's triggering this to happen in the first place, it would be very hard to find treatments to prevent it. And, you know, there are some medications we can use to help treat uh, the medication, but um, when you're dealing with nerves, it does kind of, um, it's difficult to treat nerves. And like some of the current medications increase survival by only a couple of months rather than, you know, increasing it by years. So that, unfortunately, what we have um, doesn't seem to give significant length of improvement, but you know, if you're someone in their 50s or 60s when you're diagnosed, those couple months could mean making it to a wedding, making it to a graduation. Sure. You know, so those it's definitely worth it, but um, it'd be nice if we had medications that had better efficacy over a longer period of time. Are there populations that are more likely to be diagnosed with ALS? So it initially is... Um, Men some tend to be at higher risk for uh, getting this, but really anyone, and especially women after menopause, have an equal risk as men. Um, people that are smokers have a higher risk of this. They have found an increased incidence in um, military veterans, so they don't know if that's related to you know chemicals or heavy metal exposure or some sort of exposures in the environment that we're trying to find um, as increasing that risk. Well, On Call with the Prairie Doc is on SDPB-TV, and it's also on the Prairie Doc Facebook page. Dr. Cruz's episode on ALS airs this Thursday, September 14th. That's at 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain, and you can often find Prairie Doc perspectives in your local newspapers. We also put it up on our website at sdpb.org news. Dr. Cruz, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you so much. Politics and public policy reporting is supported by the Center for Western Studies at Augustana University. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. 
Around the world, journalists and news outlets have reported extensively on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You've likely heard quite a bit about the war right here on In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But there's one place you won't find that kind of reporting on the war, and that is in Russia. Nobel Peace Prize winner Dmitry Maratov has strategically defied President Vladimir Putin with his independent newspaper's investigative reporting into the war. And Dmitry's story and his fight for a free press in Russia is chronicled in a new PBS Frontline documentary. Putin versus the press is streaming online now and will broadcast on SDPB TV on Tuesday, September 26th. We have with us today Patrick Forbes. He is the film's director, joining us via Zoom. Patrick, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Now, I can say that Russia invaded Ukraine and there is a war there, but the censorship laws in the Russian Federation have changed drastically since the time of Mikhail Gorbachev. Will you tell me a little bit about uh, Dmitry's relationship with Gorbachev and, and how his newspaper began? Absolutely. Dmitry, who's a big, brave bear of a man, was fed up with state censorship in the uh, paper that he then worked at. And he wanted to start something that was fresh and independent. And it so happened that Mikhail Gorbachev had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he, too, wanted uh, a fresh, independent newspaper. And he put some of his money into his friend's paper. And so... Novaya Gazeta was born, which is the paper that Dmitry, well, I should say, edited, but has edited for how long? Uh, 30 years. And in those 30 years, it's uncovered scandal after scandal in Russia and has paid a very, very high price for that. Six of its journalists have been killed in those 30 years after they annoyed the Kremlin. Anyway, uh, this brave history came to an end uh, rather soon after Gorbachev himself died. Um, the paper was closed down by a rather vengeful Vladimir Putin. So your relationship with Dmitry Murtov, um, you're, do you just happen to be following him when all these, you know, the new things are happening? Tell me a little bit about how you came to creating this documentary. Uh, well, he's been a friend uh, for 20 years. We met under the strangest of circumstances. I had uh, gone out to Russia to make uh, a series for uh, the BBC about uh, a bunch of wild billionaire businessmen who then ran, effectively ran Russia. And I found, I was having thought it was going to be a sort of crazy story of excess of champagne and blondes and football it turned out actually to be a vicious uh struggle for control of the world's largest country which pitted these guys up against one man putin and nobody surprise surprise would tell me the truth and everyone kept saying you've got to go talk to this guy Dima muratov and i went mm, okay and he, eventually i went to meet him and 10 o'clock one very overcast moscow morning uh, there was, well, there wasn't Dima. He's always late. Um, uh, anyway, eventually he turned up. And as he turned up, he said, we must drink. And I went, it's 10 o'clock. Anyway, he grabbed a bottle of whiskey, slammed it down on the desk and said, drink, Englishman. So I drank. And then he, as my friends have told me, told me the truth about what was going on and has done so ever since. And uh, I think I'm not revealing too much that it about the film that's mm -hmm. now streaming to say that once again, we find ourselves 
betting each other a bottle of whiskey <laughs> this time over his decision to auction his Nobel Peace Prize medal. Anyway, I was teasing him about the amount of money that it was going to get. And he looked me in the eye and said, all right, I'll bet you a bottle of scotch on it. <laughs> so. And he's going to win big time. But yet at that scene, and again, I guess, you know, tune in to the, the full full documentary for how this all unfolds. But what struck me during that moment was this jubilation that people would show up for refugees, um, you know, financially during an auction setting, but also that this was the moment where I was thinking, well, how much is his life worth? Because this is an incredibly risky thing that he is doing, and he's already being targeted by forces of intimidation. You mentioned six of the journalists have been murdered. Um, the stakes are incredibly high for his personal life. How does he um, think about the other journalists that he wants to protect? He keeps going back to Russia. He doesn't have to go back in some ways, but he goes back because he puts his life on the line day after day. Tell me how he kind of thinks about that um, as a human being and not just a journalist. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you know any truly brave people. I don't know many, but the interesting thing about the truly brave is they don't make a big deal about it. It's always, you know, it's always the ones who tell the tall story or, you know, <laughs> subtly let it be known that they've done something really risky that you actually don't want to trust. And in Dima's case, he never, ever makes a big deal about it. And I think that's how he carries the strain of it. It's... <sighs> It's, it's hard to put into words, but I think he thinks that he is doing something that is important now and is going to be important for centuries. He's sort of fighting for the, this doesn't sound too grandiose, he is fighting for the soul of his country. And he is fighting for a vision of that country that is so different to Putin's, in a vision where people can say what they want, can do what they want, and where the state does not regulate your thinking your behavior and indeed ultimately your life if you're one of the poor souls who's been conscripted and shoved into the ukrainian front line he says things like the world has fallen out of love with democracy and if we give up on democracy we agree to war he has a sense of the historic nature of what's happening in the russian federation now and how it impacts the whole world. Are there things that he won't tell you? Are there things that he withholds from you? At oh, least? yeah. There yeah. Are tell me about Absolutely that. things that... Well, he... Um, we danced a dance for a year and a half over what he could and could not. And he told me a lot. And the one thing I'm conscious of in any conversation with Dima is, you know, there's going to be somebody else listening to it. So I never ask him or try not to ask him anything that endangers his life uh, or in turn endangers the life of his journalists. And that was the one condition that he and I struck when we decided to make this film. Set against that was the fact that he was going to tell me things that were risky, but he viewed them as risks worth taking for the future of his country. And I sort of go back to my earlier statement about his courage. It's sort of, it's integral to him. He, he can't stop taking those risks because he views them as necessary. So last night, in fact, to my amazement, he went to Hamburg in Germany and said, uh, I, 
I'm loosely paraphrasing here, uh, freedom of expression in Russia is dead and there is no independent journalism in Russia. Neither of those statements are going to ensure him a very warm welcome when he returns home in a couple of days' time. But he views his job and his mission as telling the truth, and he is prepared to pay whatever price that exacts. So there is a moment in this film where he is asking a question of uh, President Putin about this idea of labeling people a foreign agent, which means they're an enemy of the the people rather famously. And he stands and asks this question to President Putin's face. And I was watching, like, are his hands shaking? Is he, you know, is he, what, what <laughs> would show me that this man is nervous and that he understands the gravity of the situation? He is rock solid at least from anything I could discern. Tell me about um, how Vladimir Putin views him. Well, interestingly, until relatively recently, Putin had a grudging respect for him. There's a famous story that one night Dima was alone at the paper, you know, way past midnight, and suddenly the phone goes. And on the other end of it, is a very familiar voice saying, look, I will protect you. Nevaeh will survive. Unfortunately, <laughs> as with what are a lot of things that Putin says in the moment, he hasn't held true to it. And I suspect that in recent weeks, the fact that Dima almost alone is maintaining opposition to the regime as the war in Ukraine falters has meant that Putin has just either lost his temper or the people around him have said, you've got to shut this guy up. And it is to Dima's credit that he refuses to be shut up. Mm. So, so if, if so, he himself, Dima, has just been named a foreign agent. And in true, that conversation you refer to, um, in Russia, this is a decision that is never, ever justified in public. So Dima being Dima has said, fine, you've just branded me a foreign agent. I'm going to take you to court and force you to tell me exactly why I was made uh, a foreign agent, which is, as ever, yet one more gesture of defiance to the regime. Yeah. And the answer to that turns out, well, we'll let people tune in for what the, it's not a very satisfying um, answer for why that that transition has been made. Let's close with this. Novaya Gazeta is not publishing in the Russian Federation at this point. They have been shut down, but there is a Europa division that is uh, trying to do some of this work. Tell us briefly about that. Oh, that was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary story. He sent me a message a couple of days after the war started saying, look, get to Riga. And I thought, why on earth should I get to Riga? Anyway, I went to Riga and I found him negotiating in secret with the, uh, the Latvian government to get his journalists out of Russia and um, you know, promptly lost his temper with my producer and told her never to tell a soul as he yeah. confided in our cameras. Um, anyway, we all said, no, we wouldn't tell a soul unless it was, you know, until it all came to pass. And sure enough, five months later, a trickle of journalists made it out from, uh, not five months, a couple of months later, uh, a trickle of uh, journalists made it out of Moscow made it to Riga and have set up a paper in Latvia that enables them to continue to critique the Russian government and reveal the terrible things that have been done in the Russian people's name. They, almost to a woman and man, have now 
been banned from returning to Russia, so they are paying a very high price. But equally, it was an incredibly risky thing to do because if at any stage there had been an apparent link between this paper and the original paper back in Russia, all the people in Russia would have been slammed in jail. And somehow they have managed to navigate this uh, extraordinary divide and get the paper out and keep people safe as far as they can. And to give you an idea of the risk these people run, in about a month ago, one of their reporters went to uh, Grozny in Chechnya. Yeah. And as she got out of the airport, she pulled out of her car and at gunpoint and beaten, beaten so badly that she had brain damage. And again, I was speaking to Dima that night and he said, right, I'm going to get her. I can't face the idea that another of my journalists will die. And I said, you could say there's a death sentence on your head in Chechnya. You can't go anyway. Sure enough, he didn't listen to me and went, got her and got her back to safety. And that is an indicator of the risks that these people have run, will continue to run, and I hope at some stage will no longer need to run in the interests of freedom of expression. Is he a hero is in he Russia, hero in Russia? For the people who uh, are against the war, or is what is his status in Russia from that sense? Well, I think in well in Russia, the situation in Russia isn't quite as the support for the war is not total. Let's put it like that. So out of, I think in a recent poll, 25 million out of 160 million said they were really opposed to the war. And their only outlet, the only place they can find news is Novaya Gazeta in whatever form it is. And he is so closely embodied for, for those 25 million people, he is absolutely a hero. I think for other Russians, there's a sort of grudging respect for his courage. Um, Russia is a place where they, you know, they believe in the, to use an old phrase from the 19th century, in the strong man. And if any, anyone was and is a strong man, it's Dima. But for the rest of the world, he's for sure a hero. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to correct something I said earlier about Putin versus the press. It is streaming on Frontline's website, YouTube, and the PBS app. And then today at uh, 6 Central, I'm a little confused, at 6 Central, 5 Mountain, it, that's when the streaming begins? Okay. Got it. Thank you, producers. And then the film broadcasts on SDPB-TV Tuesday, September 26th at 9 Central, 8 Mountain. Um, Patrick Forbes, uh, the film's director, uh, I'm just waiting every day to see how this story unfolds next, and of course, as a journalist, but um, I don't even think I can call myself a journalist after watching what this man is up to um, in Russia. So thank you for bringing us this story. We really appreciate your time today as well. Oh, it was my pleasure, and uh, I hope in, you enjoy, everyone out there enjoys the film, if you enjoy is the right word, but do watch it. He is an extraordinary individual. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. From gold stars to pizza parties, rewards are a familiar part of the classroom experience. But are we helping our students by rewarding them or are we hurting them? 
For this week's Teacher Talk, Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur encourage us to rethink rewards in school and in the workplace. Benz is an English teacher at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls. Wilbur is the director of the Center of Student and Professional Services. That's at the University of South Dakota's School of Education. Well, I've been reading a book by Alfie Cohn, and he is a renowned lecturer and researcher in education. I uh, first started reading Alfie's work when I was in college back a century ago (laughs) in the (laughs) 1900s, and uh, he continues to do great work. He uh, emphasizes that the rewards actually demotivate in the long run, or the rewards motivate people to get rewards, but they're not motivating for the actual intrinsic joy or satisfaction of doing a job and doing it well. So as school was starting, I thought about the games I like to play with my students to help them learn and review. And it's wonderful now. Students can do online games and we can do it as a whole group. And over the past couple of years, I've been giving out little lifesavers as treats for the top five winners or something like that. And it never sat well with me Mm. because the same students get the lifesavers every single time. And and as hard as I try, I'm sure some students are only giving a half-hearted effort, even shutting down, because they never, ever win. So I thought, I got to change this because these rewards are, are demotivating for a lot of students. And they're also maybe a little bit embarrassing for the ones who get them every single time. Yeah. Jackie, it's tempting or even celebrated sometimes to give rewards. What is the pull to rewarding in the classroom? Why do we end up going back to it again and again? Because it seems like a natural thing to do. Oh, of course it is, right? Someone does something good and you go, great job, right? We do that all the time as kind of an inherent human response. We want to reward good behavior. So I don't think um, either the book that Gina is discussing nor Gina or I are saying rewards are inherently bad or something to avoid entirely, but they do kind of create this like, like Gina said, it's sort of the same students over and over again getting those rewards and the same students not. And when I read Gina's blog post and was, was contemplating about today, I thought about when I taught middle school and we would do an uh, a semester, uh, each semester, everyone who made the academic honor roll would get to go to an ice cream party during study hall. So it wasn't like, you know, disrupting class time or anything like that. It was sort of this period of time during the day that was was built in for activities like this. Mm-hmm. But I would stay in the classroom with the students who didn't get to go to the ice cream party and no one is sadder than a middle school student who is not at an ice cream party. And it did have this effect on those remaining few students in the room of saying like, oh, I'm the bad kid, or I'm the kid who can't ever make honor roll, you know? Yeah. And so um, I think that side of the, the coin is the one that we're looking at today. I remember my daughter, it was a test. It was a standard, one of the standardized tests in second grade. I don't remember what the test is now, of course. <laughs> but what I remember is that if you got a perfect score, you got to have lunch with the teacher. Mm. And she got one wrong. Mm. And it took every bit of, I mean, I could not convince her that she had been successful on that standardized test because the standard, the expectation for excellence, and she was a very good student, so she was not out of the realm of thinking she could have 
gotten 100% on that test, but she got one wrong. Mm -hmm. And Gina, to your point, what I remember doing, because I probably doesn't surprise people that I was a ambitious student <laughs> and I'm being kind to myself. But I remember if I would win too much, then I would pretend to be wrong. Yes. Mm -hmm. I because I, you had the sense that it was, you were being impolite by taking all the attention. And so, and it, you know, you didn't want to look, so you would sandbag. You would, you would say something wrong. I would pretend to not know an answer. I so that somebody else thing. could feel Same. successful. Yep, yeah, all the time. In fact, yeah. uh, Jackie, you and I were talking once how in, in school, especially in high school, we were learning to get an A, not learning to learn and grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was that like for you, Jackie? You know, I was a very, I, I feel like we have similar qualities, the, the group of us here, and, and it sounds like your daughter as well, Lori, where it was yeah. just really important to me to get it all right all the time. Mm. Um, and it did create a high level of stress for me. You know, I, I just started to be a very intense person who was, who was very focused on getting things right, getting um, all the best scores, trying to get the highest ACT, trying to make sure I had all A's. And I think I lost the force for the trees a little bit, you know, and mm -hmm. that's um, really what I focused on when I became a teacher was trying to address that kind of mindset. Because like Gina said last week, learning is so fun. And I inherently have known that I've always enjoyed learning. And so um, the the game of trying to be perfect really took away the joy of learning for me. And I didn't want that to happen for future students. So what else, if not rewards, Gina, if we know that the research shows that rewards are not an effective tool for learning or for, or for helping people understand the intrinsic value or that internal locus of control, if you will, what else? Yeah, when I was learning to be a teacher back in the 90s, uh, my educational psychology class emphasized behaviorism, B.F. Skinner behaviorism. And that's what we're talking about right now, rewards and punishments. So I was taught to use rewards and punishments in the classroom. Well, what do we do instead? We find the joy of learning. And this is a hard task. It takes a teacher who has tremendous intelligence, care, and courage to do this. But you have to tap into every student's intrinsic motivators. You have mm. to know your students and you have to figure out what will make them excited about the learning. And so it means I cannot just hand out a worksheet because then my students will be compliant. They'll be quiet in the classroom. If the principal walks in, I'll have these just dutiful, <laughs> studious students. It means that they're not compliant, but they're, that they're engaged. It takes a lot of creativity on the teacher's part, but teachers are doing it every day. And Jackie, they, this class, this group of students that comes to you might have a long tradition and high expectations for rewards because they've come from another place or household or what have you, where they feel like they should be rewarded. How would you communicate to a classroom um, that, yeah, the lifesavers are not coming out at this point, and that's okay. I mean, do you tell, I suppose it depends on how old they are, but do you tell them? Yeah, of course. I think direct communication is the number one way I like to function in a, a classroom space. But yeah, yeah I think that, uh, to Gina's point, that intrinsic reward 
um, that seeking out how to intrinsically motivate students is is a very powerful tool. I talk a lot about growth mindset in, in working with students, and I know we're going to have that as a separate topic on a different day, but I think that students do really appreciate the knowledge that they are capable of growing and learning. What rewards has a tendency to do is put, uh, kind of like Gina was saying earlier, put it students in the box, those who get the rewards and those who don't, or the quote-unquote good students and the quote-unquote not as good students. Mm -hmm. And um, that idea of that you can evolve and grow and learn and change and that your neural pathways are always evolving and making new connections is very empowering. And so there's, it, it also I think reminds students that they're more complicated than getting a lifesaver or not, or getting a reward yeah. or not, which I think taps into that, that deeper sense of self that I've always found students are really interested in learning more about. So Gina, it's also not give everyone the reward. Oh, no, no. Tell it's, me a little bit about learning. Like, how do you measure growth then? How do you help students measure their own growth, whether in high school or elementary school? So when I started to get really sick about giving out the lifesavers to the top five, I thought, I think we just need to celebrate growth. So my students have a notebook that the Live Like Cat Foundation has provided. And in it, they keep track of what score they got or how many points they got or what percentage they got right every time we play one of these learning games. And the only goal is that they keep improving. Mm -hmm. And and I talk to them. Sometimes you're gonna you're gonna go down, you're gonna have some failure, but we learn from failure. We always learn from our mistakes and the overall trend will go up. And you know, I talk to them about we're gonna have fun learning. We're gonna this is gonna be meaningful. This is gonna be relevant. I, I use those words and I'm very direct about why we are doing what we're doing. We're not doing it for a standardized test. We are not doing it to get a certain GPA. We're learning so that we can be better for ourselves, for our community, for society. That's such a cool thing you're doing, Gina, mm -hmm. because, I mean, I don't know, I feel like it's really tapping into the idea that they aren't going to have this linear growth all the time because they're different people on different days. When they have a bad morning and they're sad or something happened, like the likelihood that they're going to perform as well is not as high. And so this kind of like growth over time way that you're showing themselves to themselves, I think is so important. And again, just emphasizing growth. Right. We all just yes. want to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the big question. Isn't that a a reward? Aren't grades rewards? And <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so just watching growth, a person's individual growth, there should be that should tap into an intrinsic motivation, mm -hmm. an intrinsic desire, and then that that feeling of joy through the growth. So no, that's not an extrinsic motivator. Grades. Yes, they are an extrinsic motivator. And there are people who, who are continually grading less. And there are, are even classrooms that don't give grades at all because of this research. Yeah. Jackie, you want to weigh in on, on sort of navigating the reality of grades in many classrooms, but yet also navigating the fact that we pretty much know that that's maybe not the best way <laughs> to be measuring ourselves, but yet we're not all ready to get rid of them yet. Sure. I mean, I think this is um, a question that happens in education all the time, right, where we're aware of some research that says one thing. We're aware of the practice that has been occurring in the system for a long time. And then also, like, 
grades are a part of our culture at this point, you know, that this is the part of the American psyche, you know, mm -hmm. and so un uncoupling grades from school would be a pretty large movement. It's fun to talk about in theory. And Gina's right, there are some movements in that direction. Um, but I think it's it's very much tied to the way we do school is to have grades as part of it. Yeah. I got to mm -hmm. see, you know, we're kind of this, we're all sort of high achievers and we were good, good students by good. I mean, we're <laughs> the people who got the grades that, you know, we aspired to get. Um, but I remember getting a C in high school chemistry and man, that was a hard fought C. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I cannot even tell you what went into getting that C because chemistry was whew, and Mr. Gene Erickson, who just saved my life, working with me again and again and again on the basics and fundamentals so I could pass that class. And I remember the report card coming home, my mom going, why'd you get a C? And I was just like, at that point, I didn't even, I didn't even care to explain it. And I was mm -hmm. like, yep, sorry. And I just, <laughs> yeah. you know, but so sometimes we learn from the, I wouldn't say that I did poorly because I really do feel like I did well on that. I mean, I really did come out of that feeling like I, I grew so much, but it was having that see in my face and yet feeling that I had worked so hard to get it that kind of helped me realize that these other things that I thought mattered didn't quite matter in the same way. Does that make sense, Gina? You, yes, you are yeah. totally tapping into another aspect of teaching that is so important. And that is, um, well, Jack, you've been mentioning it, mindset, mm -hmm, helping yeah. students with what their mindset is. I say so often, probably every week to my students, we are all smart in different ways. Yeah. And, and people need to know they don't need to be smart in every way. We can't. That's impossible. So we are all smart in different ways, and we should honor that in each other and the second thing I say to them a lot is who wants to be a friend with someone who's perfect mm. <laughs> it's okay to yeah. have weaknesses and to fail from time to time because that's what makes us human mm -hmm. this is so relevant Jackie for our real lives and for our workplace too as I think most of what we're going to talk about in teacher talk like don't tune out just because you don't have kids in school yeah. right now or you're not an educator because this is for managers and bosses too, isn't it, Jackie? Make the connection between bonuses and employee of the month and the different things that we do to reward our employees or the way we seek rewards That's a really work. Yeah, really yeah. good analog. I'm just thinking about, first of all, shout out to Mr. Erickson and all. <laughs> He's a star. Right, and all the teachers <laughs> out there. Um, and I just feel like, you know, like you said, it's like almost like that C, if an A is for effort, you deserved an A in that class maybe more than any other yeah, class, right? Um, and I always struggled with this when it came to grades as well. I would watch a student just work so hard, put in way more effort, and then content-wise grasp of it at about a C level, and then someone who just kind of naturally got the material put in a third of the effort that they did in the same concept, right? Yeah. And so I do think that out in, as managers and as people in the workforce, we're able to honor the effort that goes into work and that does get rewarded, right? Employees of the month are usually the hardest workers. And that's something that stuck stu with me for a long time. I feel like that concept was instilled in me as a young person that you can 
make up for or that I was able to make up for maybe my lack of skill in certain areas with effort. And I think that translates to the workforce very well. So um, you're right, absolutely. We can take the things we're talking about in teacher talk and bring them into everyday life. Yeah. How do you recover if you are a gold star student, Gina? And you go into the real world and you don't always get a gold star for everything that you do that's well. As adults, we sometimes have to reteach ourselves to, mm. to enjoy work without the A+. Man, that's a process. Yeah. I mean, that's not a quick fix at all. That's rewiring your brain. And I hope we can have more students come out of our school system who don't need such significant rewiring, yeah. that their worth is not um, held by external motivators, by external validation, that their worth is uh, something they see in themselves. However, how do we undo that? You know, I think I undid it through finding great friends, uh, reading books. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's probably different for everybody. That's, that's a good question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the ongoing work of education. Well, <laughs> yes. more teacher talks in the future. Uh, Gina and Jackie, thank you so much for being here with us. We'll see you next week. See you thank next you. week. You can find and share this conversation on our website. Go to sdpb.org slash teacher talk. Well, that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On the next In the Moment, our Dakota Political Junkies conversation takes us into the monumental leaders rally press pool. We'll hear Governor Christy Noem's thoughts on who wasn't at the rally and former President Donald Trump's verbal attack on the press. Journalist Seth Tupper is with us. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.